Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Norton Herbst, and um, 20 years ago, I was living in Austin, Texas. I had just been out of college a few years. Uh, I had gotten uh, married just recently. I had a new job at a church. I was switching jobs. I had leave, I was leaving a job from um, engineering, and uh, in between jobs, Janice and I decided to take a month off and do a road trip out west um, to see all the great national parks and all the great sites of the American West. And I put, picked up a book to read along the way, and the book was called "Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee." It was by D. Brown, and it was a story of the American West as told by Native Americans. The author himself wasn't Native American, but he used their writings, he used their histories, their records to let their words and their voices tell their own story. And it was utterly depressing because for the first time, I saw this history through Native American eyes. I read about the massacres of their people, of their families from their perspective. I heard their voices and I heard their accounts, how our government, my government, broke treaty after treaty after treaty, promise after promise after promise. And of course, I knew that our government had made mistakes in the past, but these were not just mistakes. This was widespread oppression. This was genocide. And the more that I read, the more I studied, and I continued to read and study even after this book, the more I realized this wasn't leftist propaganda. This wasn't uh, CNN or MSNBC sort of whipping up a story just to get ratings. This was simply history, a history that had been conveniently buried and forgotten. Because before I read this book, I shared the attitude that I think most Americans shared at that time. We would have said, yeah, we treated the Indians poorly. Sorry about that, right? <laughs> but can't we just move on? And what I've realized in the last few months and years is that this is the same sentiment that I and that many white Americans have felt toward black Americans. Yeah, slavery, racism in the South. It was, it was bad 150 years ago. Sorry about that. Can't we just move on? And the answer is no, no, we can't, because racism was a whole lot worse than we thought it was. It was a whole lot more widespread than we thought it was. It saturates our history, and it's not over. It was ne never really dealt with. It is still prevalent today, so we cannot move on. And last week, we said when we started talking about this, one of the main reasons we can't move on is not just because it's one of the biggest problems in our country, is because if we're followers of Jesus, if we're on a journey of faith with him, what we need to realize is that racism is, is contrary to the gospel. It just is. God is always, when you read the Bible, he's always on the side of the poor and the oppressed. He's always uh, standing with victims of any kind of injustice. And so to choose to trust in Jesus and to choose to follow him is to choose the side of justice. And what that means is it's not enough to not be a racist. 
We have to be anti-racists. We have to be against racism, but that's really hard for most white Americans because we don't really understand the nature of racism and we don't understand the history of racism. We don't know the depth of the problem. And so for two weeks in this series, my goal has simply been to help us better understand the nature of racism, the history of racism in our country, so that as followers of Jesus, we can embrace the gospel mandate to be anti-racists. Now, I explained this a bit more uh, last week, so if you didn't hear that message, go back and listen to it. But let me remind you of a definition that that I shared with you then that we're going to unpack more today, and it's a really important definition. And that's that racism happens whenever actions and policies based on racist ideas produce racial inequities. This is adapted from historian Ibram Kendi, and it simply means that you know racism exists whenever there's racial inequities that exist, whenever there's significant inequalities or inequities between two races of people in the same area, it's because actions and policies have been put forward that are based on racist ideas. And the key word here, I think in this whole definition, is the word policies. That's the primary driver of racial inequity. It's not just about individual prejudice or discrimination, as bad as that is. Racial inequity is created by policies that affect an entire group of people. Slavery is the clearest example of this, right? White Europeans and Americans bought into the idea that that people from Africa who were black, that's what they called them, were inferior. That's a racist idea, right? And as a result of that racist idea, they enslaved them for hundreds of years. That's the policy that produced racial inequity. Now, after the Civil War, the policy of slavery ended, but new policies were created by white Americans, and we now call many of those policies uh, Jim Crow laws, and they, they maintained huge racial inequities all the way until the 1950s. And I want to just give you two examples of that this morning, and that'll lead us into where we're going. In 1950, Mississippi, and and I have ancestors from Mississippi, half of all Mississippi residents were black, but whites controlled the state government, and they put in place laws and policies that required two things for anyone who wanted to register to vote. The first was you had to pay a poll tax. And you had to pay that for two years before the election. And it was a tax most poor black residents could not afford. And then the second thing is you had to pass a literacy test. And it was the county clerk in each of the counties of Mississippi who was always white, who administered the test. And the county clerk could select any passage from the Mississippi State Constitution, which is not the easiest of reading, and make the person applying read it out loud and then explain what it means back to them. And then it was entirely up to the county clerk to decide who passed the test and who didn't. Oh, and by the way, a clause was added that said, if one of your ancestors, a grandfather from before the Civil War, was qualified to vote, then you're automatically eligible. You don't have to take the test. So the test was only a barrier for black people. And because of those policies in 1950, only 1% of black Mississippians were registered to vote. And now you can see how policies like this might be justified 
as having nothing to do with race, right? It costs money to run an election. So that's why we have to pay, make people pay a tax. And when people vote, they have to be able to read the ballot. So we should have a literacy test, right? You could see how these would be justified, but these policies were explicitly racist because they created huge racial inequities. Here's a second example. In Clarendon County, South Carolina in 1950, 30% of the county was white, 70% of the county was black and white kids and black kids were required to go to different schools because of laws they had passed that, that were built on a Supreme court decision made in 1896. And just take a look at these two pictures. The one on the left is a white school. It's big. It's nice. There's a new science lab in this school. There's a new cafeteria and the county provided 30 buses to make sure that white kids could get to school and have a good education. The school on the right is a black school. It's the one that was provided for black kids. It had two rooms, no running water, no electricity. And the school board provided no buses for the more than twice as many black children in the county. In fact, when a report was done about the state of funding in this county at this time, it was shown that they were spending $221 per student in white schools and only $45 per student in black schools. That is a racist policy. Because anytime different levels of funding, of resources, of access, of facilities, of opportunities create significant racial inequities, that's racism. And in this case, because the quality of the schools was so different, most black kids didn't even go to school for more than a few years. And that means they didn't get a good education, which meant down the road, there wouldn't be as many employment opportunities for them, which meant lower incomes down the road. And and the inequities just continue to go on and on and on, all because of these funding policies. You see, racial inequity is not just about an individual act of prejudice or discrimination. That's why it's not enough for us to simply say, I'm not a racist. Racial inequity is produced by official actions and policies based in racist ideas. And it's not hard to see these policies and the inequities they produced in the system of slavery and in the Jim Crow laws of the 1950s. But if you know your history, you know that this is when the civil rights movement began to take shape. In 1954, there was a landmark Supreme Court decision, Brown v. Board of Education, that required the integration of school systems across the country. And then in 1956, Rosa Parks refused to move on the bus, and the Montgomery bus boycott was launched. A young Martin Luther King Jr., an African-American preacher at the time, became leader of the movement. And by 1963, he told the nation that he had a dream. In 1964, the Civil Rights Act was passed, and that outlawed segregation for good and did away with Jim Crow laws in all public spaces. There couldn't be separate bathrooms or separate parks or separate swimming pools anymore. And then in 1965, the Voting Rights Act was passed, and that did did away with all of those racist voting laws. And we might think that all of these successes and the civil rights movement was amazing, that these dealt with all of the problems of racism in our country, that it solved all of the issues, that all of those policies that were creating racial inequities were destroyed. 
But that's not what happened. There were policies that persisted, policies that went unnoticed, policies that went unchanged. And in fact, there were even some new policies that were created. And we know that there were racist policies that continued to persist or that there were new ones that were created and that there's ones that still exist today because there are significant racial inequities that still exist today. Let me give you a few examples. Black women die three times more often giving birth than white women. Why is that? Is there something wrong with black women? Are they just not biologically as strong as white women? No, that's crazy, right? When I say that out loud, we all say, no, that's a racist statement. The better question to ask would be, what policies are leading to this inequity? Because wouldn't we all say this is unacceptable? I mean, if the numbers were flipped, if white women were dying three times more than black women when they gave birth, wouldn't we all say this is unacceptable? Here's a second example. Just look at the percentage of students graduating from college. So of all the students who enter college, this is how many actually finish. Why is it that black Americans are significantly lower than almost everyone else except for Native Americans? Is it that black Americans and Native Americans just aren't as smart as everyone else? Is it because they don't persevere as well? Maybe Asian Americans and white people, maybe they can just hang in there better, right? No, that's crazy. I mean, when I say it out loud, we all know that there's a racist idea there to think that there's something biologically inferior about black people or Native Americans. And that's the reason the majority of them start college, but they just can't figure out how to finish it. No. The real reason is that there are policies, there are systems that make it more difficult. How about household income? Why is it that black Americans make significantly less than white Americans? Do they not work as hard? What about home ownership rates? Why are black Americans not able to own their own homes at the same rate as other racial groups? What about the poverty rate? Why is it so much higher, more than double, almost triple for black Americans than white Americans? Why almost three times as many black Americans live in poverty? One more. Why are black Americans incarcerated at such higher levels than white Americans? I mean, this is a huge gap. Just look at the pie chart down below. There are almost five times as many white Americans in the general population as black Americans, but there are more black Americans in prison. And so let me just say it out loud. Is that because black Americans are more violent? Is it because they're inherently more prone to criminal behavior? Let's be really honest. Let's call that for what it is. That is a racist idea. Remember, race is a category that has been constructed. It's a social construct, or or a better term is it's a power construct. There's nothing biologically or inherently different between someone we call black and someone we call white or someone we call Hispanic simply because of their race. There's certainly nothing different in God's eyes. 
We believe that, right? We're all children of God. We are all equally prone to sin, and we are all equally given and extended the grace of God. And in fact, every piece of scientific evidence and sociological evidence we have, every shred of data suggests that when black Americans and white Americans are given the same opportunities, the same resources, the same policies, then the result is going to be general equity among the groups in all of these categories that I just went through. Now, some individuals will achieve more. Some individuals will be more lazy. Some will have greater health issues. Some will make more money. Some will choose criminal behavior, but it will have nothing to do with race. Some people are lazy because some people are lazy. That's a trait of individuals. That has nothing to do with the category of race. Unless there are specific policies that are treating these racial groups differently. Which leads us to the question we have to ask. And it's the most important question of today. What policies continue to produce racial inequity? And that's a really complex question. And I'm going to admit I'm not an expert on it. This is why I'm a historian. It's way easier to diagnose problems and what went wrong 50 years ago or 100 years ago than to figure out what's going wrong right now. Now, in a moment, I'm going to give you a couple of suggestions, a couple of things to think about, some policies that endured or were created after the civil rights movement that have continued to produce racial inequities. But before I do that, let me just pause and say, getting to the point of being willing to ask this question would be huge. It would be a massive step forward if white Americans could admit that for hundreds of years, policies have created racial inequity and policies are continuing to create racial inequity. And that means it's our responsibility to figure out what those policies are, to challenge them, to change them, and to recognize that in the challenging and the changing, it's going to be uncomfortable, it's going to be hard, it's going to be messy, it's going to require sacrifice on our part, it's going to mean letting go of power and control, it'll mean things are going to be different than they always have been. And if we could do that, that would be huge, not just for our society and not just for black Americans, but it would be huge for us personally. I can't think of anything more spiritually transformative and gospel focused that we could be focused on right now. You see, following Jesus means being willing to change. It means being willing to repent. It means being willing to forsake those things in our lives that are unhealthy. It means having a new understanding of what it means to be rightly related to God and rightly related to and loving our neighbors. It means uh, letting go of power and control in our lives. It means surrender. You see what I'm saying? We need to confront policies that are creating racial inequity in our, our, our culture and in our society because of our love of justice and because of our love of neighbor. And it could also be one of the most spiritually transformative things that any of us could personally be involved in right now. This is inherently connected to the gospel in each and every one of our lives. And so if you're willing to ask this question, 
and willing to, to embrace the uncomfortableness of it, then you have taken the first step. And that is huge. Now, to help us get started real quickly, I want to share with you what I think are the two most detrimental policies over the last 75 years when it comes to creating and producing ongoing racial inequities. The first is housing segregation policies that have made it difficult for black Americans to purchase homes and have forced them to live in segregated areas. Now, this is a really complex issue and I was gonna just unpack it myself, but uh, there's a really good and short video um, that was produced by NPR that I think will explain it more succinctly um, than I can, uh, so take a look. Let's look at MLK Boulevard in Baltimore. I wanna show you how to see housing segregation in schools, in health, in family wealth, in policing, but first, an explanatory comma. It's the 1930s in the wake of the Great Depression, FDR's president. He wants to bring economic relief to millions of Americans through a collection of federal programs and projects called the New Deal. One part of that New Deal was the National Housing Act of 1934, which introduced ideas like the 30-year mortgage and low fixed interest rates. So now you have all these lower income people who can afford homes, but how do you make sure they don't default on their new mortgages? Enter the Homeowners Loan Corporation. The HOLC created residential security maps. And these maps, they're where the term redlining comes from. Green meant best area, best people, aka businessmen. Blue meant good people like white collar families. Yellow meant a declining area with working class families. And red meant detrimental influences, hazardous like foreign born people, low class whites, and most significantly, Negroes. Again and again on these HOLC maps, one of the most consistent criteria for red line neighborhoods is the presence of black and brown people. Let's be clear, studies show that people who lived in redlined areas were not necessarily more likely to default on their mortgages, but redlining made it difficult, if not impossible, to buy or refinance. So landlords abandon their properties, city services become unreliable, in most places, crime increases, and property values drop. All of these conditions fester for 30 years as white people flee to the brand new suburbs popping up all over the country. Many of those suburbs institute rules called covenants that explicitly forbid selling homes to black people. And all of this was perfectly legal. Now it's 1968 and MLK is assassinated. Good evening. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, 39 years. of nonviolence in the civil rights movement has been shot. Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight. In the aftermath, Congress passes the Fair Housing Act of 1968. It's a policy meant to encourage equal housing opportunities, regardless of race or religion or national origin, and it offers protections for future homeowners and renters, but it does little to fix the damage already done. Over the next 50 years, the Fair Housing Act is rarely enforced. So you can still see housing segregation and its effects in Baltimore and often along any MLK Boulevard in any U.S. city like its effects on wealth. So home ownership is the major way Americans create wealth, right? Well, discrimination in housing is the major reason that black families up and down the income scale have a tiny fraction of the family wealth that white families do, even white families with less education and lower incomes. For almost 30 years, 98% of FHA loans were handed out to white borrowers. 
Not only were black neighborhoods redlined and not only was the Fair Housing Act selectively enforced, if at all, but it is still today much harder for a black person to get a mortgage or home loan than it is for a white person. Families are fearful of speaking up about a basic human right that should be afforded to everyone in the world, but definitely in the richest country in the world. And housing segregation in schools. The primary way that Americans pay for public schools is by paying property taxes. People who live in more valuable homes have better funded local schools, better paid teachers, better school facilities, and more resources. Here's a feedback loop. The better the schools in a neighborhood, the more those homes in that neighborhood are worth. And the higher the property values of those homes, the more money there is for schools, and so on and so on. And housing segregation in health. Because of urban planning that benefited those richer, whiter neighborhoods, people of color are more likely to live near industrial plants that spew toxic fumes. They're more likely to live far away from grocery stores with fresh food and in places where the water isn't drinkable. They're more likely to live in neighborhoods with crumbling infrastructure and in homes with toxic paint. When you're living with rats, roaches, and things like that, that's the problem. You cannot have that kind of stuff with children running around in a building, a building that may be full of lead. And not coincidentally, people of color have higher incidences of certain cancers, asthma, and heart disease. And housing segregation in policing. Housing segregation means we are having vastly different experiences with crime and vastly different experiences with policing because our neighborhoods are so segregated. Sometimes racial profiling can be camouflaged as spatial profiling, where living in certain areas can make you more likely to be stopped by the police. And it means that people have a lot of unnecessary contact with the criminal justice system just because of where they live. The problem in our city the police and the citizens are fighting. They keep targeting my brothers and sisters who don't really have nothing. And that heavy, aggressive kind of policing that you see in black neighborhoods in particular makes people feel like they can't trust the police. And when people don't trust the police, crimes go unsolved and people have to find other ways to keep themselves safe. But of course, it's not just Baltimore, because housing segregation and discrimination fundamentally shaped the lives of people in nearly every major American city. It really is in everything. See policies of, of redlining, policies of mortgage companies and who they lend it lent to and who they didn't. Policies of neighborhoods that had restrictive covenants. All of these things created the kind of housing segregation that we now see. And it's not just the deep south. And it's not just cities like Baltimore or Detroit. It's in Denver, too. If you live in the Bonnie Bray neighborhood near the church or the Crestmore neighborhood or the University Park neighborhood, you live in a neighborhood that in the 1940s and 50s had a restrictive covenant. Your neighborhood forbid anyone who is not white to purchase a home there. In fact, let me show you a map of Denver today. This is from the last census, and it's according to race. The blue dots are white residents, orange are Latino residents, and green are black residents. You can see how segregated our city is. Let me show you a close-up of central Denver. 
we are in a very segregated city. If you are Hispanic or black, there's a really good chance that I can tell you what part of the city you live in and what part you don't. You see, I grew up in an area of the South that was segregated as well. White people lived in one part of town and black people lived in another part of town. And I thought it was all by choice. That's just where people want to live, right? And I'm realizing that has very little to do with it. There are systems and laws and covenants and policies and barriers that have long determined where people live in our cities. As the video showed, that creates huge inequities. It has an impact on health, on education, on employment, on wealth, on poverty, on violence, on crime. And we have done very little to address it, partly because it's an extremely complex issue and it's been going on for 100 years and there are no easy answers. But mainly, we don't address it because most of us are just ignorant about it. We just don't know. And hopefully, that's changing. Now, the second issue, the second set of policies that has created huge inequities is mass incarceration. This was developed after the civil rights movement in the early 70s under the Nixon administration, and then it really took off in the 80s under the Reagan administration, the Elder Bush administration, and even the Bill Clinton administration, where the biggest crime bill in recent history was passed. It was under all of these presidents and under these administrations that our government declared a war on drugs and a war on crime. And the idea was that presidents and politicians, Democrats and Republicans both, were going to take back our inner cities and they were going to deal with drugs and crime once and for all. And the policies included mandatory sentencing guidelines. Judges no longer had discretion. Minimum sentences for minor crimes. Stiffer penalties for certain types of drug crimes. The growth of the private prison industry. We have private prisons now. Lots of industries and companies that make more money the more people that are incarcerated. Think about that for a second. And of course, it included the massive growth of our police forces and the resources they use. Because if you're going to fight a war on crime, you have to create an army to do it. And most Americans supported the war on drugs and the war on crime. We didn't realize the massive problems it would create and the huge racial inequities it would create. I want you to take another look, um, a look at another video this is from Bruce Western, who's a sociologist. Here's what he tells us about mass incarceration. Mass incarceration means that we've got a very high rate of incarceration historically, comparatively. And the other thing is the rate of incarceration is so high, so socially concentrated, that we're no longer incarcerating the individual, but we're incarcerating whole social groups. The rate of incarceration now is about five times higher than it was historically. Historically, it was 100 per 100,000. Now it's about 500 per 100,000. If we look at prison, if we add jail to that, it's about 700 per 100,000. Nowhere in the world incarcerates as much as we do. We've seen extremely high rates of exposure to the criminal justice system. For African-American men with very low levels of schooling, 
So if we think about black men who were born in the late 1970s and who were growing up through the American prison boom of the 1980s and the 1990s, the chances that they're going to serve time in state or federal prison if they dropped out of high school is about 70%. So going to prison for that group of black men with very low levels of schooling, that's become a normal life event. And that's really only happened in the last 10 years. We're at this point now where there's about 1.2 million African-American children with a parent who's incarcerated. That's about one in nine. The research shows the kids who experience parental incarceration have diminished school achievement, they have behavioural problems, depressive symptoms, acting out, and there's also evidence that these kinds of negative effects associated with parental incarceration are concentrated more among boys than among girls. And there's a very real risk here that incarceration becomes an inherited trait. The underlying issue is we've chosen prison as a way to respond to that problem of crime. And there are a whole variety of ways that we could have chosen to respond to that problem of crime. We've chosen the response of the deprivation of liberty. And we've chosen the response of the deprivation of liberty for a historically aggrieved group whose liberty in the United States was never firmly established to begin with. Mass incarceration has become a massive problem. And there's no denying that it affects black Americans, not just a little bit more, but significantly more than white Americans. And when you're a convicted felon, you've done your time, whether you committed the crime or maybe you were innocent, but you've done your time and you get out of prison, guess what? You've lost the right to vote. You don't have that right anymore. Your employment options are going to be extremely limited because anytime you fill out an application and have to answer that question about whether you've committed a crime or not, they're not going to call you back. Your housing is restricted. Your educational opportunities are restricted. You can't even serve on a jury anymore. Think about those restrictions. That's why scholar Michelle Alexander calls these policies of mass incarceration the new Jim Crow. It's like we've stepped back in time to disenfranchise an entire new generation of black Americans. Now, there's a lot more that I could say, but this sermon is already long. So let me wrap up and give you three challenges. Three things that I want you to consider doing. Um, One is for right now, one is in two months, and one is in four months. So let's start with right now. I want you to finish reading the book that you started. So last week, I challenged you to buy one of these books. I'll put them back on the screen again. We put seven books up there, uh, books that we think began to help us think and understand this problem. So I challenge everyone to simply buy one of these books and start reading it. And if you saw the sermon last week and you didn't do that, then you're a terrible Christian right? Um, No, you're not, but uh, you can still do it and you should. So buy one of these books. Um, We'll put them on our website as well um, under the sermon resources and uh, start reading it. If you bought one of them and you started reading it, stick with it. Take it slow. Don't give up. Allow your eyes to be open. Allow your heart to be open. Allow your mind to be 
open. If you finish the book and you want to read another one, pick another book. But take this time to learn and to listen. That's what I want to challenge you to do right now. Here's the second challenge. In two months, I want to challenge you to do something. How's that for a really specific practical to do, right? Do something. I don't know what it is that you should do. I don't even know what it is that I should do about this yet. But I know we need to do something. So in two months, I want you to take some sort of action. I want you to make some decision. I want you to get involved in something. Take a step. It doesn't have to be big. You can't change all of the systems or all of the policies. But don't just settle for, well, I'm not a racist. Be an anti-racist. So set an alarm on your phone now, right? Or put it in your calendar now and, and say to yourself, I'm going to, over the next one to two months, I'm going to read and educate myself. I'm going to learn. And I'm going to listen and I'm going to reflect. And maybe I need to do some repenting as well. And I'm going to do all of those things. But by the end of August, I'm going to take some step. I'm going to do something. And then here's the third challenge. In four months, in four months, I want to challenge you to vote for candidates who are anti-racist. In local elections, in state elections, and in national elections. And let me be super clear here, because in 20 years of being a pastor and preaching sermons, I have never told anyone who to vote for. Uh, because elections are complicated, because God is not a Republican or a Democrat. He doesn't pick sides. And because Christians are often enamored by political power. And we think if the person that we vote for will just get in office and everything will be okay. And that just almost always backfires. But if there is one issue where elected leaders could actually change policy, at the local level, at the state level, at the national level, where elected leaders could set a new tone, could be constructive, could be helpful, could give our neighborhoods and our cities and our states and our country the kind of leadership that we need. If there's one issue, it's racial injustice, right? So find leaders, find candidates. They can be Republicans, they can be Democrats, they can be independents, they can be from a different party. It doesn't matter. Find people that tend to line up with you on all the other issues that are important to you, but find people who will also fight against racism and then support those people. And that's not from the Bible. The Bible doesn't say anything about voting because they didn't have voting back then, right? That's just wisdom. If you want to be serious about seeing change happen. It starts with us personally and our lives. But if we also want to see it happen in our communities and in our cities and in our countries, we will look for local and national leaders who are courageous enough to tackle these issues and to tackle these policies that have continued to create racial inequities. So those are my three challenges for you and for me. And I pray that we'll think deeply about taking them on today. Let me pray for all of us. Lord, thank you um, for our community of faith who's willing to think about this issue, listen on this issue. And God, I pray that you would use these books we're reading, these resources we're engaging. And God, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would move in each one of our hearts and we would be willing to let go of long-held assumptions 
And we would willing, be willing to be open to whatever it is you want to teach us about you, about brothers and sisters, about our world, about our own shortcomings, about systematic policies of oppression that have done so much damage that we haven't even seen. God, give us the courage to hear what you have to say to us and then give us the courage to be a part of what you are doing in our community and in our city. We pray all of this in your name. Amen.